Well, good afternoon again, Emmanuel. Please join me in a short word of prayer. And Father, we come to glorify your name this afternoon. We pray that we would do that, that your name would be glorified in the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me by your spirit, that you would help remove distractions, and Lord, that you would help us behold wondrous things from your word, and namely your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, the birth of future kings and queens, those who will be heirs, those who are heirs to royal thrones, are generally grand affairs. They're festive occasions. If you're anything like me, the picture you probably have is at the birth of a future king or queen, uh, maybe something from the Middle Ages, some guys coming to the edge of the castle wall with like the super long trumpets to play a, a long note to announce an important announcement is going to come, and then somebody coming to announce the long-awaited son or daughter has been born. I was actually reading about some of the traditions surrounding royal births in England, and it sounds like they are still pretty grand occasions. Even uh, today in the 21st century, that it is a grand occasion when a royal baby is born. So I am not from England. I may not get quite all of these traditions right, but from what I read, it sounds like for every royal birth, there is a 41-gun salute announcing the birth of the prince or the, the princess. There is an official announcement that is posted just outside of Buckingham Palace, uh, the royal residence there in London. And all the ships in the English Navy fly a specific flag to commemorate the occasion. Yeah, well, the point is that these births are to be grand occasions. They are things that are meant to be celebrated. Uh, the people are to rejoice that a new prince or princess has been born. Yeah, well, so when we come to Luke chapter 2 and the announcement of Jesus' birth, we recognize something of what is going on. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 is our sermon text for this afternoon. You can go ahead and, and turn there if you have not already. But in our text, we see a birth announcement that is fit for a king. An angel of the Lord comes to, to shepherds who are tending their flock in a field, and the glory of the Lord shines as this angel tells them that a Savior has been born, a king has been born in Bethlehem. Well, it's not just that. Following this announcement by the angel, a whole, a whole heavenly host, a number of angels come praising God. It is a grand and glorious announcement. It is a birth announcement fit for a king. It is far grander or more glorious than any of those royal births that I just described to you a second ago. And yet, when we turn and we look at these verses in Luke chapter 2, there's some things that don't seem to quite fit. Well, if this announcement is so grand and glorious, why is it being made to some shepherds in a field? Uh, the announcement itself is glorious, but why is it made to shepherds? No other kings or, or rulers or, or nobles. And not only that, Jesus himself seems to be born far away from any royalty or nobility. He's born to an ordinary woman, Mary. He's born in a smelly manger or laid in a smelly manger. He is not in a castle or a royal residence. Well, why? Why is this the case? Well, these are some of the questions that we are going to investigate today as we examine the most important birth in the history of the world that is the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, so please follow along with me as I read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. 
This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angel had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Well, I have two points for you to consider from these verses this afternoon. The first is reasons for certainty and the second, reasons for joy. So reasons for certainty and reasons for joy. Uh, and the, the main idea, I think the main thing that Luke wants you to take away from this text this afternoon is that the birth of Jesus is sure news, or you might say certain news. The birth of Jesus is sure news, and it is good news of great joy for lowly sinners. The birth of Jesus is sure news, and it is good news of great joy for lowly sinners. Uh, so with that thought in mind, let's look at the, the first point of the sermon, reasons for certainty. Uh, so I don't know if you remember back a couple of weeks ago in our opening sermon from Luke's gospel that Luke in chapter 1 verse 4 gave the reason that he was writing the gospel of Luke. He says he is writing that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed, that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So he is, is writing his gospel account for a few reasons, but one of the central things is that he wants to give you confidence in who Jesus is. He wants to give you, he wanted to give his readers confidence in the accounts that they had heard of Jesus' life are true. And so I want you to see in these verses this afternoon that Luke gives you several reasons to believe what he has written is true that the birth of, of Jesus some 2,000 years ago actually happened. Now Luke gives you good reasons to believe. So first, Luke provides many historical details in this account. If you look back to verses 1 through 5, there are a number of historical details provided in these opening verses of chapter 2. Uh, Luke says that it's under the reign of the Roman, Caesar, Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, that a census or a, a registration took place which required people to return back to their hometowns. So the, the land of Israel at this time was under Roman occupation. It was under Roman rule. 
And so Joseph and Mary left Nazareth where they were living and they headed to Bethlehem, which was Joseph's hometown in order to be registered with this registration or, or census. Luke also mentions that this happened while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Well, why are these details important? Why would I say that these things give you reason to believe? Well, first, it shows what Luke is, is writing is history. Now, he's certainly writing more than history. Luke is not just writing history, but he is not writing less than history. Uh, he's showing that the, the stories of, of Jesus, they're not just religious fables designed to teach moral lessons. It's not just putting a creative story around some good moral lessons that we want to learn. Uh, these things took place in time, and these th things took place in space. These things took place really in human history. And these historical details Luke provides would have been easily falsifiable. They could have been easily refuted. And you have to remember when Luke was writing his gospel. He was writing his gospel at a time in which some of those who took part in this registration or the census would have still been living. This was recent history for his audience. It would have been easy to disprove some of these details if they were false. And yet Luke includes them. And Quickly, in the history of the early church, Luke's gospel is accepted as a reliable account of Jesus' life and his ministry. In addition, even outside of the Bible, there is other historical evidence that a tax assessment or a census actually did take place under Caesar. There was a governor of Syria named Quirinius. And so these historical details that Luke is putting here are to give you reasons for certainty. Luke wants you to see that what he is writing is history. Well, you may not have come and expected to get a, a bit of a history lesson in the middle of a, a sermon this afternoon. Uh, and so I want to stop for a moment and examine, and as we're examining what you might think are a little bit of mundane, boring historical details, what I don't want you to miss is that God was using human agents to accomplish his divine purposes. So even in the midst of these historical details, Luke is showing us that God was using human agents and human actions to accomplish his divine purposes. So as Delane just read for us, long before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and that the ruler, the one to shepherd his people, would be born in Bethlehem. But Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. They did not live in Bethlehem. And so God, who is sovereign over kings, who is sovereign over rulers and nations, had Caesar Augustus issue a decree that would ultimately lead Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, that Jesus might be born in the city of David, just as had been prophesied hundreds of years before. And God used human agents to accomplish his divine purposes. Well, it's not just the historical details that Luke gives as reasons for certainty here in Luke chapter 2, but it's also just the very circumstances that surround Jesus's birth that should give you certainty that what he writes is true. Now, in the time and place that, that Jesus was born, in the time and place that Jesus was born, it would be very surprising that the announcement of his birth would first be delivered to shepherds. Shepherds were not very well thought of members of society at that time. They were thought of as dirty. They were thought of as unclean. Uh, perhaps they even had reputation for dishonesty. Uh, so they were something closer to outcasts than they were respectable members of society. 
They were not a people to be easily believed. They were not a people to be easily trusted. And yet, the good news that a Savior had been born is first delivered to them. And not only that, they become the first messengers of this good news. Friends, this is an indication of God using the weak or foolish things of the world to shame the strong and the wise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, the Apostle Paul writes this. Brothers and sisters, so he's writing to the church there in Corinth, the believers there in the city of Corinth. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In other words, he's telling the people in the church there, not many of you were important, not many of you were wise, not many of you were strong, and yet God chose you. God saved you. Well, why did he do that? Well, the Apostle Paul goes on to write, God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. And why does God deliver this news to shepherds? Why does God save those who are weak and lowly? Why does God save those who are weak and insignificant? That's not the only people God saves, but why does he do this? Why does God deliver this good news to the shepherds? Well, he did this that the wise and the strong might be shamed, that there would be no reason to boast in God's presence, that the boast of salvation would only be in God himself who provided it. God did it that he might be glorified, that no man might boast in their wisdom, that they were so smart to figure out how that they might be saved, Uh, They would not boast in their own works and how good they were, but all would humble themselves before God and praise his name for salvation. That's why the good news is delivered to the shepherds. But what's also unmistakable from Luke's account, if you look there in in verse 7, is that Jesus was born in humble circumstances. Jesus himself came poor and lowly into the world. Bethlehem itself was not a glorious place. It was a a small, insignificant city, as uh, Micah wrote. Mary and Joseph themselves did not travel there in luxury. When they arrived, they did not get to enjoy the finest accommodations that the city had to offer, Uh, the ones that you might would say are fit for a king. And no, there was not even room for them. And so they wound up in some sort of a stable where the animals were staying, and Jesus is laid in a manger likely a feeding trough for animals. Uh, It is not a glamorous place. It is not the place that you would expect a king to be born. So why are these circumstances, the fact that the good news of the gospel was first delivered to shepherds, that Jesus was born in humble circumstances, why would I say that these are reasons for certainty, that these are reasons to believe that the good news that Luke is writing about is true? Well, maybe it would help if if I illustrated it for you. Uh, So I just finished reading through a a book with my kids called Sir Malcolm and the Missing Prince. The prince in that story is a young man by the name of Hubert. He is an arrogant man. He's an unjust man. Nobody likes Hubert. So at the request of the king's counselor, Sir Malcolm, his father, the king, sends the prince away for a couple years to live as a common man, a poor person, a person of the land, in order to learn humility that he might rule the kingdom well when he finally becomes king. Well, at first, because Prince Hubert is an arrogant and unjust young man and a selfish young man, he rebels against this disgrace, 
And Prince Hubert tells everyone he encounters that he is the prince and he demands to be treated with a certain dignity. The problem is, Prince Hubert is no longer dressed as a prince. Prince Hubert is no longer escorted by people from the castle. Uh, there is no obvious signs that Prince Hubert is anyone special. He just looks like an ordinary person. So nobody believes him when he tells them that he is the prince. Why would a prince be dressed as he is? Why would a prince be staying in these roadside inns as Prince Hubert is staying in? So people do not believe Prince Hubert when he tells them he is a prince. Instead, they mock him and he learns to be quiet. Well, something similar is at work in Luke's gospel here. If Luke or, or other biblical authors were simply making up a story, if they were simply trying to make something up to get you to believe that Jesus was God's king and the savior, if they wanted you to know that Jesus is God, the very son of God, God himself, they probably would not have written that Jesus was born in such humble circumstances. Uh, who is going to believe that a baby born in a manger and born to a poor couple in an insignificant city is truly the one to sit on David's throne forever? Who would believe he's the one to redeem mankind? They would certainly have not have written it that this good news was first delivered to shepherds. No, this is not the story that would be told if they were making it up. But these surprising details give evidence that what Luke is writing is true. Luke is giving you reasons for certainty. But beyond that, beyond just giving you reasons for certainty, I think these details that Luke provides here in Luke chapter 2 should make you just stop and marvel that Jesus, very God, the creator of the universe, the one deserving of all glory and honor and praise, would come to earth in such humble circumstances. Well, it's like one of you being offered a room in a five-star hotel, deciding that you would rather sleep outside on a rock for the night. It's actually much more than that. But you should marvel that Jesus would come in such humble circumstances. I mean, even the fact that, that Jesus, God himself, would take on human flesh at all is an act of great humility. And Jesus took on human flesh for you. He did it to do what you could not do, to live a life of perfect humility and obedience to God the Father. And Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself by suffering the mocking and scorn of those who rejected him. And he humbled himself by hanging on a cross to pay the penalty that you deserved for your sin. But friends, the, the Christian faith is a faith that calls for humility because its Savior, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is humble. That's why the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's why God comes for people like the lowly and humble shepherds who do not make their boast in themselves, but only make their boast in the Lord. My friends, as we looked at last week, the way to find God's favor is to humble yourself, to become lowly and confess your sins and place your trust in the servant king, Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, humility is not just a one-time thing either. It is not just marked by a one-time confession of sin. Humility is to be the lifelong pattern for Christians. So the next time that you find yourself desiring a certain position or a certain recognition, the next time you're convinced that you could do the job better, Whenever you're tempted to elevate yourself over another or boast 
or even sometimes when you're just tempted to complain, remember the humility of Jesus. Follow the example of your Savior who came to serve and not to be served. Brothers and sisters, the the church itself is supposed to be a picture of Jesus' humility. As brothers and sisters in Christ who have been given different gifts, different spiritual gifts by the Spirit of God, are to use them for the building up of one another. And not to serve themselves, but to humbly serve, encourage, build up one another. And friends, the, the church is supposed to live out the humility of Jesus as we live out those things that we read about in the church covenant just a few minutes ago. But brothers and sisters, there is another reason that Jesus came in such humble circumstances. It wasn't just to be an example of humility, though it was that. But as one author put it this way, it is a mark of the fullness of Jesus' humanity and identification with us that he didn't come on special terms to be spared the frustrations of our limits and the pains of our world. Rather, he was all in, fully human in body, mind, heart, will, and surroundings, fully human in our finitude, in common frustrations, fully human in our vulnerability to the worst a sinful world can work. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came in humble circumstances so that he could identify with his people. I mean, have you ever thought about that fact? That Jesus understands your suffering and trials? That he experienced them? He did not come as a a powerful ruler who was spared from the difficulties of the world. He did not come and live in, in palaces and mansions and largely spared from the difficulties this world has to offer. No, he came humbly. And friends, that should make you rejoice. That is a reason, that is good news of great joy that Jesus can identify with his people because it means that he understands. You have a high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses. You can cry out to a savior who understands, who cares, who experienced the same things that you experienced. Praise be to God. Well, there's one more reason that Luke gives for certainty in these verses. So he gives historical details. He tells you some of the amazing circumstances around Jesus's birth, that this news would come to humble shepherds, that a savior who is to be king of the world, the king over an everlasting kingdom would come in such would come in such humble circumstances. But Luke also says that in these, Luke is also showing that in these verses, God fulfills his word. Luke makes sure to point out that the word that the angels spoke to the shepherds proved to be true. In verse 12 of our text, the angel says, this will be a sign for you. So the angels speaking to the shepherds say, this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Well, the shepherds immediately go to investigate this good news, not because they doubted, but as they say in verse 15, they wanted to see what the Lord had made known to them. They wanted to see this baby that a whole heavenly host would come and tell them about. Well, and what did they find as they go look for this sign that the angels told them they they would find? Well, if you look in verse 16, it says that they, being the shepherds, They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And then if you skip down to verse 20, the shepherds returned after seeing Jesus, 
glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. And God fulfilled his word to the shepherds just the same way that he fulfilled his word to Zechariah, just the same way that he fulfilled his word to Mary, and just the same way that he has always fulfilled his word. Friends, Luke is pointing you to the truthfulness and reliability of God's word. He has been doing this from the very beginning of his gospel. God's word has proven true time and again, and therefore you can have confidence that God's word will continue to be reliable in the future. And the fact that the shepherds found the baby just like the angels had said was a sign that the Savior had truly been born. And friends, the fact that God's word has proven true in the past, that it proved true to Zechariah and Mary, that it proved true here to the shepherds, should give you great confidence that what God has promised in the scriptures, he will bring to pass. You can rely on his promises. And so ask yourself this afternoon if, you're, if your life reflects a belief in the reliability of God's word, a belief that God will bring his promises to pass. Now, friends, maybe if you're not a Christian, I just simply ask you, do you believe that Jesus will one day return in judgment and that Jesus is the one and only way of salvation? Do you believe in the promise of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ? And brothers and sisters, maybe those of you who would say that you are Christians, do you believe that God's commands are good? That following him is worth it? That there is a reward laid up for those who persevere until the end? Do you believe that God has given you the power to fight sin by his spirit? If you believe that God has given you the power to fight sin by his spirit, do you fight your sin? Do you pray over your sin? Do you confess your sin? Do you turn to God's word in the midst of trials and temptations so that you might be reminded of his promises? Brothers and sisters, the true and reliable promises of God are to be the fuel of the Christian faith. The true and reliable promises of God are to be the fuel of the Christian's faith. So brothers and sisters, practically, let me encourage you to daily read God's word. When you come here on Fridays to listen attentively to the preaching of God's word, and not because I am someone worth listening to, but because hopefully the preaching of your word reminds you of God's promises and his reliability, that they point you to the truths of the gospel. Friends, let me encourage you to discuss God's word with your friends and your family. And when you gather together, you're not just discussing the latest COVID regulation the latest travel ban or release, but you come and you gather and you discuss God's word with one another. Encourage one another by reminding each other of God's promises. God has given you his word to build you in the faith and assure you in the faith. And God has given you his word that you might encourage others in their faith and assure them in their faith. And brothers and sisters, Luke is pointing you to the truthfulness and reliability of God's word. It is a reason for certainty. And that takes us to the second point of the, the sermon this afternoon, which is reasons for joy. Uh, reasons for joy. And so with as, as much attention as Luke devotes to showing you the certainty of his words, with as much time as I've devoted to preaching to you about the certainty of Luke's words, I think it is worth noting that being certain of what Luke writes here 
Well, it's really not all that encouraging to be certain of what Luke writes unless what he is delivering to you is good news, unless he is delivering to you news that you would like to hear. Now, for any of you who have ever received a piece of bad news, which I trust is probably everyone sitting in this room, and perhaps news of a tragedy that has struck a close friend, a disaster that has struck your home country, maybe the death of a loved one. Well, if you have ever received one of those pieces of news, my guess is that your first thought is, please don't let that news be true. Please don't let that news be true. I hope you hope the person that, that told you the news had it wrong. You hope maybe that you had misunderstood. You do not want that news to be true. We do not want the certainty of bad news. We only want to be certain about good news. And so I want you to see this afternoon that this message that Luke delivers is good news. The message that the angels deliver is good news. The birth of Jesus is a reason for great joy. Look again at verse 9 of chapter 2. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. Well, when the the angels come and the, the glory of the Lord shines there in that field as they are keeping their flocks, they are understandably fearful. But the angel turns and he comforts the shepherds. The angel comforts the shepherds by telling them that the news to be proclaimed, the news that he has come to deliver, is good news. It is news of great joy. The news of great joy is that a Savior has been born. A Savior has been born. But notice the angel says not just that a Savior has been born generally. He says a Savior has been born for you. He tells the shepherds, a Savior has been born for you. It was not just good news generally. It was good news for the shepherds. Jesus was a savior for those poor, lowly, dirty, outcast, distrusted shepherds. But we see in verse 10 that Jesus' coming was good news of great joy, not just for the shepherds, but for all the people. Now, when Luke writes all the people here in verse 10, when the angel said all the people there in verse 10, it is likely that what was in mind was the entire Jewish people. That's how the shepherds would have understood it, as the promises of a Savior had come to the people of Israel. But as we work our way through the gospel of Luke, Lord willing, over these next few weeks and months, we will see that this news of salvation in a Savior is more than good news just for the people of Israel. It is good news truly for all people. In the verses that we're going to study next week, in fact, in the the sermon text for next week, there's a man named Simeon who speaks of Jesus being a light to the Gentiles. So Jesus brings bringing salvation and being a light to the Gentiles, not just the Jewish people. Jesus truly is a savior for all people. And so friends, that means that Jesus' coming is not just good news for the shepherds, it is good news for you. A savior has been born. There's a way that you can be forgiven from your sins. I mean, this news is such good news that even an entire heavenly host appears on the scene proclaiming glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people that he favors. 
the heavenly host seemed to be rejoicing in this good news. It wasn't even just means, reasons for rejoicing for people, but for the heavenly host. And they come proclaiming glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people that he favors. Well, the reason that they come proclaiming this is because salvation is a work of God and it brings glory to God. And brothers and sisters, we do not earn our salvation. It had to be revealed to us. God had to send Jesus to us. And Jesus had to reveal himself to us. And why was Jesus born to a virgin? Why was he born in humble circumstances? Why did God send a savior at all? For his glory. God did it for his glory. Yes, salvation is good news for you, but it is ultimately for the glory of God. And when you understand this, when you understand the fact that salvation is not your work, it is a work of God's grace and it is a work for his glory, you will respond with the same joy of the heavenly host proclaiming glory to God in the highest. But the birth of a savior, while the birth of a savior is for God's glory, it is also good news of great joy because it is a declaration of peace on earth. Well, that's the second part of this proclamation of the heavenly host. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people that he favors. It's a declaration of peace to those whom God favors. Peace to those with whom he is well pleased. Well, friends, to understand what this proclamation of peace means... Friends, to understand that the arrival of a Savior is good news, you first have to understand that there is bad news. Jesus brings peace by his death, but only to those whom he has favored. The bad news, though, when we consider that it is peace on earth to whom God has favored, the bad news is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The bad news is there are none on earth who are righteous. There are no men and women who are righteous. The bad news is that no man or woman who are in the flesh can please God. Mankind in the flesh, apart from God's grace, cannot please God. The bad news is that in your sin, you are an enemy of God. You are not at peace with God. You are an enemy of God. And friends, you are unable to reconcile yourself to God. You cannot be good enough to make peace with God. But that is why this news of a Savior being born is such good news. Is that God did, sent Jesus to do what you could not do. God sent Jesus to bring peace. To reconcile you to God. Sinners can be reconciled to God. Sinners can be made to be at peace with God. To go from being an enemy of God to being his friend. Because Jesus took the penalty for sin on the cross that every single man and woman who has ever been born deserves. He died as a substitute on behalf of all those who would place their faith in him. And the prophet Isaiah writes this in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person. I will look favorably on this kind of person. One who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. And friends, the Lord looks favorably on those who respond to him in humble repentance and faith and cry out, God, I cannot save myself. I need you to save me. God, I am a sinner. I am an enemy of you. I need Jesus to make peace by the blood of his cross. 
God looks favorably on this kind of person, the person who recognizes Jesus is the Savior, the people who proclaim his, him as king and submit to him, and those who listen to his word and tremble at his word. Friends, if you want to know why there is so much focus on those who are poor and lowly in Luke's gospel, why I have been preaching about it for these last few weeks, why we see in the gospel of Luke and really all the gospel a focus on people like the shepherds, somebody ordinary like Mary, the sick and the lame, it is because one, their outward condition is a reflection of the inward condition of our hearts. We are poor, we are sick, we are lame, we are diseased, we are sinners. But also, at the same time, the outward condition of the poor and lowly often is a reflection of their inward response to Jesus. It is these people throughout the gospel who humble themselves before him and plead for his mercy and grace. They know they have no other recourse. They might have leprosy. They're outcast from society. They're shepherds out in a field because they're dirty, outcast, unclean. People do not look on them favorably. And so they are eager to humble themselves before a savior who comes for all people. Friends, Jesus came for the sick, not those who think they are well. He will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. Oh, this was the response of the shepherds. The angels tell of this good news, and they immediately go to see what the Lord had made known to them. They believe. They are eager to see this salvation that has just been proclaimed to them. And notice, as soon as the shepherds find Jesus, verse 17 says that they went and reported the message they were told about this child. And they told others. And then after telling others, they go back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is that their joy overflowed. Their joy at this news of a Savior, that a Savior had been born to them, it overflowed into praise for God. It overflowed into telling others of this good news. And so I re remember when Delane first told me that she was pregnant with Adeline, our our oldest child, our firstborn. Uh, she was so excited, Delane was so excited when she found out she was pregnant that she called me at my office. She called me at work and asked if she could come to my office to share some important news. Uh, that was an unusual question to receive from Delane, but she couldn't even wait until I got home a few hours later. She was so happy at that news. And now her excitement, the unusual nature of that request tipped me off. I knew exactly what the news was going to be long before she arrived at the office. But the point is her joy overflowed. She could not keep it to herself. She found out and she just had to tell somebody. She wanted to tell me so bad that she was pregnant with Adeline. And brothers and sisters, if you really believe that the gospel is good news of great joy, if you have experienced salvation, forgiveness, adoption into God's family, your joy should overflow. It should overflow into praise of God for what he has done. It should overflow into sharing the gospel with others. Your desire should be to share this news with others that they might come to experience the same joy. Sharing the good news of the gospel is one of the overflows of the joy that you have received. Praising God through singing, as, as we have done, is one of the overflows of the gospel and salvation that you have received. So, brothers and sisters, does this response of the shepherds characterize your own response to God's gift of grace in your life? God didn't just call the shepherds to share the good news of the Savior. He has called each and every one of you to do it as well.
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Friends, if you struggle with sharing the gospel with others, know that it is something that we all struggle with. But know that the more you are amazed by your own salvation, the more joy that you take in God's work in your own life, the more you are amazed that God would send a savior for you, the more your joy will overflow. And so how can you cultivate this joy? Maybe if this overflow isn't something that you feel like is present in your own life, how can you cultivate it? Well, first, remember that joy is not the same thing as happiness. As my former pastor once wrote, joy is delightful confidence in the triune God who orchestrated, accomplished, and applied your salvation. Joy is delightful confidence in the triune God who orchestrated, accomplished, and applied your salvation. The shepherds were confident in the message they had received because God's word proved true. They had found it just as the angels had told them. That is why Luke goes to such great lengths to show you the certainty of the things that he has written. It is because the certainty of God's word, the certainty that God will fulfill all of his promises, leads to joy. It leads to delightful confidence in God. But second, don't just remember that joy is not the same thing as happiness. That only gets you so far. Remember what God has done for you. One way to to cultivate joy is to do what Mary did. And we're told in verse 19 that Mary treasured these things in her heart. And friends, if you want to cultivate joy, treasure the truths of the gospel and God's work of salvation in your own heart. Meditate on them. Meditate, think on what God has done for you. Brothers and sisters, when you are struggling to feel the joy of your salvation and to glorify God, you must meditate on gospel truths. You must meditate on the truths that have been stored in your heart. Remember that you were poor and lowly, lost in the darkness of your sin, but God's grace overflowed to you. He sent his son Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your sin. He regenerated your heart by his spirit so that your eyes were open to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He led you to repent and believe. He has forgiven your sin, not because you deserved it, but because he loves you. He has given you eternal life and he has prepared a place for you. One day he will glorify you, give you a resurrected body and give you the great joy of worshiping him forever. Brothers and sisters, there is no higher joy than that. So brothers and sisters, friends, my prayer for you is that God will help these truths sink down deep into your heart that God will help you treasure them, treasure the glorious truths of the gospel, treasure his work of grace in your own heart, and that your joy will overflow into praise of him and overflow into ministry to others. Let's pray. Father, what glorious